What's up guys, this is Corey Baker from Baker Forge and Tool. In my business, we do tons of heavy grinding every single day, and we needed a grinder that could take abuse and keep on trucking without slowing down billet production. The AmeriBraid Variable Speed 2x72 is just that. All heavy duty parts and framing with well thought out accessories that are easy to use and not bogged down with lots of tiny parts. By far the best accessory item that AmeriBraid sells is their surface grinding attachment. It is absolutely foolproof and the best in the industry. With quick release magnet system, there is no prying your workpiece off the platen. Very fast to slap a billet or a knife onto the table, engage magnets, and start surfacing with precise increments. On top of all of this, their customer support is outstanding. Eric and Kevin are always available and fast to help with any situation. If you're in the market for a top-of-the-line grinder or maybe just an accessory to add to your existing setup, go to AmeriBraid.com and use the code HUSTLE100 for 100 bucks off any grinder package. All right, next up, the Hustle & Grind Podcast. What's up, everybody? We're back again. Noah is out this week. He's not feeling good. He's got heat stroke. So today we got Toby from the Fire and Steel podcast and UK Knife Maker Supplies filling in for Noah. And our guest this week is Tobias Hangler. How's it going, guys? Good. Great. So we've got two Tobies this week. Tobias, not are you ever all. a Toby? Or are you always Tobias? <laughs> um, uh, usually amongst friends, I'm Toby. But uh, you oh, got that's Toby, really I'm Tobias. It's, that's okay. good. We'll, Sick. we'll leave it at that. And this is a worldwide podcast because we got an American, an Aussie slash British guy, and an Austrian. That's correct, right? You're an Austrian? I didn't, I didn't yes. fuck that up. Austrian. Okay. No, no, that's, that's perfect. That's perfect. Fine. Okay. Does it remind you at all of Dumb and Dumber where Jim Carrey's sticking his head out the window and, he's, and he says to that the model walking past and he goes hi oh, where are you from and she goes i'm austrian and he goes good day mate put another shrimp on the barbie and she's looking at <laughs> like he's a total moron uh, usually it's uh yeah people get uh confuses a lot with australians um so i the the, the best uh the best occasion was when i had a sword sent out to uh, a competition in the u.s and they were supposed to ship it back after the competition. And they misread the label and the, the sword got sent to Australia instead of Austria. <laughs> so it was like oh, a no, four-month no. journey until I had it back. It was, <laughs> it was fantastic. Yeah, it's quality. <laughs> it's interesting that any of the rest of the address worked. You, you think someone would have picked that up much before the fact that it got to Australia. And they went, uh, I'm pretty sure this isn't Australia. Yeah, where, where's the town? I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> no idea, but apparently they just read the the, the country, and uh, if that sounds like Australia, it's good enough. Amazing, <clears throat> amazing. I mean, good old Americans, eh? We we were a pretty <laughs> tiny country, so I get it. <laughs> but, they don't uh, they don't teach us much about the rest of the world here. Nothing else is important, right? No, no. If you, no, we're, it's easier to be patriotic if that's the only thing you know, right? Right. Yeah, like uh, we we have geography class, but they don't like go into the cultures of the world or like anything. You know, there is no really. rest of the world except for war. They teach us all about war and how you won them all. Yeah, most of them. <laughs> you either won them all or you help someone else win them all. I always it made me it made me laugh. You know the whole Florida man thing. Yeah, the whole the, the whole that I heard somebody asked Honor. 
do you get like what what's your place in your country that's like Florida man? Like the guy was always from Florida. For us, that's just an American did this. So all Americans <laughs> are Florida man to everybody else in the world. Uh, I, I love it. If you start a story of it that's ridiculous and no one's gonna believe it, you have to say they were an American or no one yeah, no one will believe it. Wow, really? We have that's the reputation we've got. Hundred percent. Man, you say they're American <laughs> and then say the dumbest thing you can ever think of, people go, oh, yeah, that's America. Yeah, yeah. Just like especially certain certain types of things like super capitalist or somebody got sued for something super ridiculous. Um, so, if you say that's, that's American, funny. like, yeah, I've got to believe it. Um, you can get sued for everything in the U.S. So it's like people, we're still laughing at this. You know, you can't put your cat into the microwave kind of things where yeah, yeah. you know you get a, a lawsuit and it's actually you know favoring the person um who put the cat into the microwave and you're like oh okay what? there was no label on the microwave <laughs> or the cat <laughs> someone has to be sued for this it's like yeah. the old story about the american who sued cadillac or somebody because the story's just made up most of it probably all of it i don't know when self-drive came out cruise control because it was called self-drive and an American drove off the forecourt, slammed straight into the wall in front of him and then sued the, the, whatever the, the vehicle producer was, the D- Detroit motor company, because it wasn't self-drive or, that, or, or sued the Americans that sue McDonald's because their coffee's too hot or, or whatever the thing is. Say that. <laughs> yeah. She won. She, she's a millionaire now. That's American, yeah. mate. That's what you spot. It's, it's obvious. <laughs> You're proving our point. Yeah, sorry, Americans. I honestly do love all of you. This blows my mind because I mm. wasn't aware that this wasn't a global thing. I I thought like people like slipped and fell at Walmart on purpose and sued Walmart everywhere. No, no, you, that's that's very American. Um, yeah, you fall over here, coming, you're an idiot. It, yeah, it's it, it's coming more. I feel like um, also in our legal system that you're never to blame, but somebody else is. Mm. Um, but. And you know what yeah, that you is? started it. I think well, you started yeah. it. So you're they playing. started it because our children watch <laughs> YouTube and American TV shows. Hundred well, percent. That's why. I want you to know that those people are pieces <laughs> of shit, and I do not condone that behavior. It's not all Americans, you know. You, you get these like honey boo boo <laughs> types. Like you guys don't have rednecks either, do you? Like there's well, no. Everyone's got rednecks, right? But yeah, but they're only compared to American yeah. rednecks. They're just they're own, they've got their own words. You still got those people. Like uh, fireworks were illegal in the state I live in for a long time, and then the first year that they became legalized, some redneck bought a mortar and lit it off the top of his head and killed himself. That is impressive. Yeah, and so but he's actually we, impressive. You're right. That's the right. <laughs> <way>. <laughs> it's. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Yeah. So yeah, we all I'm, got a bad rap for that, but you can't rope us all in. <laughs> yeah, you can. That's an American. So next time I tell a story about an American, it's, you know, this American, he stuck a mortar on his head and, and he did it. It blew his head off, killed him. Like, and people go, oh, yeah, he was American. Makes sense. <laughs> uh, and then his family sued the uh, fireworks company because <clears throat> um, the mortar didn't say, do not wear as a hat when you light and so they all got their money back and the guy was less important because they were millionaires i don't think the mom sued because he was no like, don't ruin this- the story <laughs> that's the story now you can't change no, it. no 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 i i don't think she sued but she was 
so ridiculed online that she had to do like a public address to like ask people to stop calling her son an idiot. And it was really kind of sad. I was like, yeah. oh man, that's a bummer. But don't light mortars off your head. No, he was so, American to be fair, so it was fine. Yeah. Everyone I mean, we it. we do grow up here with that. Like you're hanging out with your buddies and it's like, oh, I can hold my beer, you know? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The, the funny thing is that hold my beer thing, there is a whole load of that. Every country in the world has that. Like I always love yeah. watching Australians do things and you just go, that guy's going to die. But, but Australia is so legalized, like it's so nanny state. They have such weird, like fireworks legal in Australia. You can't, they're illegal unless you have a license to set them off. So when I grew up, I saw fireworks like probably twice before I was 13, like when I moved to England. And then you could buy them from we when fireworks night came around and all my mates had them <clears throat> when I moved to England, I was I'm going, Do people know you have those? You can't have those. And they're like, <laughs> I got I got them from the the like convenience store, the up literally the shop that yeah. you buy your sweets from. And whereas in Australia, you'd go jail. I might be wrong by that. No, I'm pretty sure you would go. It's like fireworks is 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 like ammunition yeah. in the street. Like they're, they're like real illegal. It's Anyway, but Australians like they do shoeies, right? rockets. Yeah, yeah. You kill someone yeah. with one. See, that's weird because us Americans view the Australian, like, okay, so like the masculine side of America views the masculine side of Australia as like the hardest motherfuckers on the planet. Yeah, you got but that. You're right. living, but you're living <laughs> under the nanny state, so you can't but, be yourself. Yeah. That, that's that's also what I got when I um I worked in how do you call that like in a company that would build um like steel works but for copper so like huge copper factories that you know make copper basically from the ore to the or finished foundries. product foundries I guess so is it a foundry if it's I think it's a foundry metall- pour yeah, right. They pour yeah, it. it's, it's not just pouring, but it's also doing the metallurgical work um, from, you know, taking the ore and taking all the oxygen out, reducing it down to uh, the metal at first. And then that would go to a foundry or to whatever company that is doing the further processing. But anyways, it's uh, irrelevant to the story. But uh, Australia had the craziest um, uh, security laws, like as you say, like very much in any state, um, like if there is any chance you can get <clears throat> one person from a, a job that is slightly, even just slightly dangerous and you can replace him by a robot, basically they would take like millions of dollars and do that project because they were basically forced to because it's um, like just not possible that you have a risk, a, like just a potential minor risk and somebody could get their thumb I don't know, smashed or something. And then if you can't replace that with a robot, you got to do it. And it was pretty, pretty crazy to see because um, I see our state as already pretty, um, pretty much in any state, although it's not in most regards, I guess, compared to to Australia <laughs> or the US. Well, do you know the funny thing about Australia is, and I'm sure it's like lots of countries, I say it's nanny state because living there, I see certain rules and I go, that's absurd, absolutely absurd. Who came up with that stupid rule? And, and a lot of it goes back to knife laws and that sort of stuff. But at the same time, we still, you still recognize Australians as people who do ridiculously crazy cool things. They're the ones who have come up with some mad ideas that you never would have thought of unless someone was prepared to risk their life. And, and, and so, and you get, even, even at Blade, right? A few years back, 
a load of the Aussies went over there and every podcast talked about the Aussies, about how crazy the Aussies were. And and everyone wanted to actually have said they hung around with the Aussies. And I talked about some talking to some of my mates, they're going, I don't remember meeting that guy. Yet it was because they were the loud ones, the ones who were drinking way too much, all that, all that sort of thing. That they are they are recognized as that. So I say when any state a lot of crazy stuff goes on there, but when you live there, you see these weird laws that just make no sense whatsoever. So I'm not I'm not bad mouthing Oz, but yeah, man, like you, you're blown <laughs> away by some of the stupidest things that they come up with. But and again, I feel like that about England too. I want to punch people I, in the face that make up laws in this country. Yeah, I think if you look close enough, you'll find those laws anywhere in the world. Um, mm. And some laws are, you know, very liberal in that state uh, or country. And then you look at it at, at just a different field and you're like, what the? It's disproportional. But I think it's, it's normal, probably. If anything everywhere. should be illegal, it's a shoey. What's wrong with a shoey, mate? There's not that much bacteria in a shoe. I can't work out the issue. It's not a problem. A Do you know what a shoey is, Tobias? No, I don't. Australians have a tradition where they will chug a beer out of their buddy's shoes. Ah, I get that. Yep. Okay. I wouldn't go as far as tradition. It's it's pretty new. Surely there's got to be some age to it to be tradition. I've never done one. I'll be honest. I'm not. I think I would just because you have to, I guess, if somebody... Well, this is what being a man's all about. If someone tells you to do something and it, and it involves a bet, you've got to do it, you right? You don't have to drink a beer out of your homie's shoe. <laughs> well, if they bet you, if they dare you, you do. <laughs> what are you going to yeah. do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? <clears throat> That's right. When uh, I come over to Wade, of- if you're going to take your shoes off, I'll have, I'll have a go if they don't smell too bad. Or I'll hold my nose. <laughs> on the other. I mean, people uh, got fungus in their toes, all kinds of nasty, man. That's nasty. But laws, it's different here in America because there your country is governed by the government. Here, our country is governed by the local and then federal government. And state law supersedes federal law in, in the state. So like like, mar- like marijuana is a good example. It's, super, it's 100% legal in Maine. I can walk into a store and buy it. Yeah. But and the federal government can't come in and give us a hard time about it, but we can't like leave the state with it or ship it across state lines or things like that. So like fireworks are a good example, too, because in Maine, fireworks were illegal in New Hampshire. They weren't. So all we had to do is drive across the border, fill our trunks and drive home. But you weren't allowed to possess it in your state in Maine? No, or, no, yeah, no, but okay. I mean, but the cops know, have good enough, you know. It, we, that's why it's legal now because everybody was like, "This is a dumb yeah. law. Fireworks are awesome." Did you have to have a Confederate flag on your roof and be driving an orange car with numbers on the side whilst you were driving with it? No, no, no that's okay. a southern thing. That's the Confederate. <laughs> I get it, but it's, it's still surely buying alcohol from one state and getting to another one without anyone without anyone knowing. Well, kind of. It's like bootlegging fireworks, I guess, but. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Confederate flag thing is almost specifically a Southern thing. Like yeah, we yeah, have yeah. Like North and South, we have different cultures. It's kind of weird. Somebody's going to get mad at me for saying that, right? No. They can suck our dicks. Fuck anybody who gets Not mad. Not mine. I'm I'll, a long way away. I'll play, <laughs> I'll play honors role this week. Yeah, yeah. Call them bitches. Uh, so I, I don't know, Tobias. If you ever if you've ever heard my podcast, you probably haven't wasted. You're probably too smart and intelligent to bother wasting your time. But um, it's I I did. It's been a while, to be honest. <clears throat> um, right, okay. But I'm I'm, I'm running out of long distance drives. Um, to I was driving a lot 
more. Uh, I used to drive a lot more, and now I actually don't don't drive too much, and that's my only podcast time. So it's it's been hard catching up on on the different podcasts, to be honest. So wh- when you work, you don't listen. Now when I work, I don't really like. Yeah, I I'm a very I get Smart stupid. Person. No, I, I get very stupid if I listen to a podcast. And, you know, my half, three, three quarters of my brain are just occupied by listening to somebody. So I'm just, you know, standing in between two rooms. And I was like, what am I doing here? I don't know. What was I? Oh, man. Oh. I oh, suck for that. Listen. Oh, this is interesting. Okay. So yeah. it doesn't really work out. I've stood uh, next to a workbench for a good hour just to listen <laughs> to a podcast because I don't want to walk away from the speaker. How, how absurd yeah, is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I usually do it with the Bluetooth um, headphones because um, otherwise, basically everything I do is loud. Um, so it doesn't work anyways if I, you know, if I listen to anything, even if it's yeah, pretty yeah, it loud, sense. it's the the work is still louder because you know whatever it is, um, making billets or grinding, it's all pretty. <laughs> Pretty noisy. Even you know the welder um, surprises me at times. Um, the the MIG welder can be like if you're going there with 300 amps, is actually you don't you don't hear anything around you anymore. No, no, it's like 300 thousand pieces of bacon rashes all being cooked. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, our listeners would never forgive me if I didn't uh, talk about Apex Ultra with you and how that's going and. What everything's looking like, and what's Apex yeah. Ultra? I don't, what are you asking me about that for? Uh, no, I'll let the buyer <laughs> explain it to you. Oh, okay, cool. Go on then. I see his secrets um, on it. I thought it was like a gym gear or something. Some Apex Ultra is like a new gym. <laughs> uh, yeah, it definitely could be. I think the logo got turned out fantastic. A friend of mine made it, um, David Wolkerstoffer. He did a fantastic job on the logo. I love it. Yeah, it's I cool. Put it on no, all it my is. gym shirts now. So. <laughs> might get a brand um so apex ultra is a, a steel that has been developed specifically for very high hardness culinary knife it's a low alloy tool steel so it's a basically carbon steel as we call it <clears throat> and it's designed for makers like us so um especially forging uh bladesmiths but you can also do stock removal with it um the technical properties you know, of the finished product are what counts, but we also took into consideration how we work as bladesmiths. So, you know, when you heat up the steel, for example, that some of the carbides um, dissolve and make hammering and forging and deformation easier, and that you have a certain plasticity of the the steel when it's hot. And that also, you know, you, you have to adjust how fast steels quench and how they anneal and these types of things, all these characteristics that are not um, relevant in the final product, maybe, but they are relevant to everybody who uses it and um, basically for the manufacturing process. So it's been tailored to like individuals or bladesmiths um, who want to make knives with a very high hardness and um, they should be grindable and forgeable and all that. That's that's basically it. Um, this has been a, a, a collaboration or a joint development with Marco Guldiman, who is a Swiss bladesmith. And um, yeah, let's say um, he's <laughs> he's well known for um, striving for perfection and doing crazy things to um, 
to get there to get to his goal. He's uh, very well known in the culinary knife world, I would say. And with Laren Thomas from Knife Steel Nerds. So <clears throat> Laren also helped us um, during the development phase, um, getting the the composition. He has you know this huge database with all the tests, which made it possible for us to compare our steel in a very objective manner. Um, you know, we develop something and then you have to decide, is this good enough to invest a huge amount of money and try to push this out? Um, although that originally wasn't even a plan. Marco and I were just, you know, on the phone talking <laughs> and we're like, you know, there's there's this field where we want something that doesn't really exist in the market. There's, there's room for a steel that we uh, that we don't really have in our market and we want to develop that and we want to make that. And we just wanted to have it for our own knives in the beginning. But then, you know, the, the project snowballed mm. and everything got really expensive. And we were like, maybe if this really turns out well, um, you know, it's it's not really, there's no point in keeping this to us. Uh, we should open this up and then try to get a good brand and get the name out and um, make it available to everybody who wants to work with it. And that's currently the stage that we're in. We're slowly uh, scaling up production. Um, the for everybody who hasn't heard anything about it, um, you can go and read the articles on Knife Steel Nerds about Apex Ultra. I would definitely recommend those because they got some good numbers for you. Um, they have, or even just the data sheet. You know, you have a comparison on where is the steel in terms of characteristics compared to other steels. Um, it's not the perfect steel for everything. You, it's not good for a machete. Um, it's not good for your katana, but it's good for high hardness kitchen knives with a very, very fine edge. Um, things that you grind to a very fine um, thickness behind the edge. And you know, it's like for racing cars of the knives. So things that are not abused, you don't take your racing car into the, into the forest streets with all the gravel, um, but you know, if you have a user that takes care of the knife, the steel is gonna like really outperform um, at least anything that I've that I've seen, and I'm very very happy with the you know the sharpness, the keenness of the edge, uh, how it's holding up the ed edge. Um, it's hardenable up to 68 HRC with still reasonable um, toughness, and Jeez. that's basically what the. Um, what the unique sales point for for it is is we have the best hardness to toughness comp um, relationship in the high hardness sector. So, if you're looking at knives 66 to 68 uh, 66 to 68 HRC, um, it's the steel that has tested the highest um, toughness at these hardnesses. So, that's where we even outperform all of the high alloy, you know, PM grades and all that. Um, <clears throat> and out of all the carbon steels, you know, it's <laughs> it's always a little bit complex um, because which is the variable that you're, um, that you keep and w which characteristics do you compare? Of course, there's a steel that is harder or tougher or whatever, but it's always about the balance of the properties that make it, uh, that make a steel good or, you know, average or bad for a certain application because you can harden pretty like even um on 
C100, so like a basic carbon steel that has 1% of carbon, you can heat treat that to a very high hardness, but it's going to be very brittle at the same time. So that's what we tried to tweak, you know, have high hardness, but not have the drop off in, um, in the toughness, because that, you know, that has metallurgical reasons. It's usually um, a type of, mart uh, of martensite that is unfavorable, that forms, that starts forming at these hardnesses, uh, at these austenization temperatures, basically. And yeah, we just tried to tweak that to avoid like the steep drop off in, in toughness and have it run up all the way to 68 HRC. But so, maybe so you guys ask me <laughs> what you want to know, because I'm just going to ramble on. It's going to be. <laughs> Last time you were on, you had talked about, uh, you weren't sure about the distribution yet. Um, how's yep. that going? <clears throat> um, it's going really good. Um, we have, um, sorry, I'm just typing this. Uh, I'm just opening the, the homepage of Apex Ultra so I don't forget anybody. But uh, we have a lot of new retail um, partners lined up. Um, the, only, the only thing we're still like lacking behind uh, is the production. So just uh, to, to make that more understandable, if you order steel <clears throat> of a certain grade, like we do, um, and that has to be made to all of these specifications that it's pure enough and homogenous enough and all that. Um, there's only a few companies that can do that. And um, there is typically four companies involved in making the steel. And from ordering the steel until we have it in our hands, it's typically eight to 10 months. So it's not like we order this and then three three weeks later, we have it in our shop and we can distribute it. And when it's, it's sold, we buy more. It's not how the industry works, unfortunately. <clears throat> so we got to plan ahead like a lot. And um, so I can only react to what has happened almost a year ago. Um, so we still have way more customers and retailers um, that are looking for material right now, and we wish we could supply it, <laughs> but it's um, you know it's slowly scaling up. Its production is still um, lagging behind um, what everybody wants. So, yeah, something um, like that's bound to take time. I mean, you're creating a steel and trying to mass produce it. You can't do that out of a garage, you know. Right. <clears throat> you yeah. need the right uh, the right companies and you need to make sure that every, every everything is working it's it's been a, a journey for me too i mean i studied metallurgy before i came back to be a bladesmith basically um but you know making a steel and directing all these companies has been way more effort and way more control that has been necessary than i anticipated you know i thought it it would be a process that once you have the recipe, you send the recipe to all these companies and they're going to do what you want and you get what they, what you want. But it's, yeah, it's been a journey. <laughs> it's. Did you find when you were doing, it, I'm assuming you start with a small batch and, and, and kind of got everything exactly how you wanted it to be. And then ultimately, like you say, you kind of end up with a, a an ingredients list to, to get the correct composition of the steel each time. Do you find on this sort of stuff that you end up with, um, you end up with the when you do pick a, a foundry to work with, you end up with the correct uh, tolerances for the steel each time, or is it one of those things? So, 
for example, like I, I have uh, Anvil's cast uh, in in China. I haven't brought over to the UK, and so many of them I would never have accepted. And we've had to talk to them about the fact that they get rid of them well before we get near them. Now I know Anvil <coughs> casting is a whole different animal. It's a, it's a cast steel. It's, but there must be a certain amount of um, material that they they can't they can't use. They're not happy with, or is that something that once it's sorted, it's sorted? Like every batch is perfect after that point. Yeah, that's that's what we wished, um, and we're working with you know um, very well known manu- steel manufacturers in Europe, so only in Austria and in Germany, which are both like heavy steel focused countries. Um, so we would have assumed that once we got that set, um, that's it, and they just do what we want. But um, we've actually had to, had um, cases. Um, we've had lots of cases where we lost material, and we had um, basically. The thing is, we pay for everything upfront, um, and they only pay to do the work, but they never pay, uh, or they, 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 yeah, they they accept the money. They say they're gonna do their best, and they don't guarantee any output. Um, so basically, like if they scrap a third of your batch, um, that's on you. It's like they they charge you for the amount that comes in through the door and they don't charge for the amount that goes out of the door and you need to you need to have apex ultra and apex ultra ish <laughs> like apex ultra ish close enough yeah at a discounted rate this is really good it's better than a lot of stuff it's not quite apex ultra but it's cheaper too so shut up yeah i mean Sometimes it's uh, it's early on in the process, and we've had cases, um, you know, that, that are just so clearly not our fault. Um, it's been in the second batch, for example, a company, they during the electric slag remelting process. So that's a process that you only have to do when you want super pure and homogenous steel. Um, and during that process, you lose quite a bit of material, anyways. You know, it's just the top end and the bottom end. You just lose something every time. Um, but then they had, like, we had two blocks of two tons each. And then we had um, one of these blocks being remolten. And in the middle of the process, they just turned the power off. And now we have, like, you know, a lot more material that we can't use because you stop the process in the middle of the process. And, yes, the, let's just say the companies aren't very... Um, customer oriented. They're like, this is the contract, you signed up for it and take it or leave it because they know we don't have that many options to go to. It takes it takes a while to set um, to set the production route and get it running. And um, we're in a very niche, um, very niche market. So, you know, we want we want it at a reasonable price. So we have to play in the in the big boy league. We have to order a couple of tons of steel every time. And there's different steel companies that start at different levels. So one company maybe started at two tons and another company maybe started at 40 tons of batch. And if you don't order 40 tons, they're just going to say like, okay, we're not interested. And yeah, so we still have to work with the guys who are, you know, working with the five ton batches, um, who accept our orders and who are still good enough um, to achieve the goals, achieve the tolerances, go through all the recipe. Because as you said, um, when you think of steel, you think of a chemical composition because that's basically the only thing you get on the spec sheet. <clears throat> but it's it's more like a recipe. Um, so just because the cook 
throws the same things in the pot, it doesn't taste the same. You know, it's about how you cook it, how you cut it, um, all these things. So there's a lot of more production parameters than just what's in the steel. Um, and basically, that's that's where that's going to determine your carbide size, how homogenous the steel is, and all of these things have an have an influence because we're making objects that end ideally in a super super fine basically in infinitesimal infinitesimally small triangle so they they end in a point to nothing at a very fine angle so any defect is going to be like when it's on the edge it's going to have an impact on your knife and how it cuts and how it performs so you want something that's as homogeneous as possible and as good as possible because we we put lots of hours in and i think most knife makers most bladesmiths anybody who makes you know damascus and all this um the material value that you put into the knife is not the problem that is going to affect the the sales price the, the most it's usually work machines belts um everything is more important than the base price of the steel so that that was basically what marco and i said we were like we just want, you know, we want the best because it doesn't matter if I pay one euro fifty for the material, or if it's thirty euros for the material of one knife. If I'm gonna make a six hundred or a twelve hundred euro knife out of it, it's just irrelevant. And why would I, you know, even if it's just a couple of percent in performance, which is usually not, but even if it's just a couple of percent in in difference, I, you know, I'd rather take um, twenty or thirty euros more into my hands. And start with the best possible material that we can have, and I think most of the knife makers are in in this in this corner where you have to you know why is your knife that value or what, why is um, why do you think your knife is better than anything that's on the market? And for me, just you know, it's homemade is is not good enough, or a design alone is not good enough. I want something that actually performs better. I'm a technical person, but that's just how I how I think about it. <clears throat> that, that's right. You are a technical person. I'm quite interested to know, to the end user, the, the idiosyncrasies between a, and I say idiosyncrasies almost tongue in cheek because they're worlds apart, but to the end user, say a chef even, someone who should know what they're doing, the difference between a piece of pretty low-end stainless steel or or carbon steel and a piece of apex ultra when they're misusing a knife or throwing it around or, or whatever they're doing you know most of them don't even know how to sharpen a knife really let alone use it properly do you do you think this is more about people like i say us and that's again we're worlds apart but people like uh, the knife geeks that have an understanding of what the composition of that steel is and what that means for edge retention and edge geometry and that sort of thing, than people who are actually using the the steel when it, when it gets to the final destination, is there what's like the percentage of people who can actually tell the difference must be the most ridiculously small number percentage wise <laughs> to 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 be out of physically tell the difference i mean what you're doing feels like a, a passion thing to me as opposed to a a requirement to a large percentage of people because generally not sure 99.9999999% of people could tell the difference even the ones who should be able to have you noticed 
there a a, a, um, a follow up from from end users being able to say, "Wow, this is incredible," or is it really from the knife maker saying, "Wow, this is incredible to use and work with and get an edge on and that sort of stuff? Um, to be honest, I think it's a little bit the other way around. I think knife makers um, realize that it's you know it's easy to work with relative to its hardness, but it's still a sixty eight or 66 HRC uh, steel is still putting up a fight for a bit. And, you know, it, it is, um, it's not the easiest steel to work with. You know, it's, if you're familiar with 50 to 100 or, I don't know, um, Algami or something with that, you, you're not going to have a, like, huge leap to Apex Ultra. It's not that different, but, you know, it's it's more in that league. It's not a beginner steel that you can pound on and everything is going to be fine. Um, you need it is for expert makers, I would say. And from the user perspective, you know, the only requirement is that they take like a decent amount of care uh, of the knife. But I have, like from the feedback that I've heard from customers, it's very noticeable. And it's also very noticeable in my own kitchen, I would say. But I'm always, <laughs> you know, I'm, I have a bias to that. Of course. Of course. Um, but it's, it's fantastic if I hear back, for example, an Australian... Uh, chef who bought two knives, uh, both in Apex. One was a huge cli- uh, cleaver with an S grind. <clears throat> the other was a petty with copper damascus on it. Um, the cleaver was a pain in the ass to grind because I had to take off, you know, like huge S grinds. <laughs> um, my thumb was, you know, it was, it was before I had the the grinding jig, um, and that was actually the knife that made me developed the grinding jig because it was just too much, you know, grinding, um, uh, like just stupid grinding, just pressure. Go at it. When you say the anyway, grinding, the one with the wheel, the bearing. Yes, yeah, that's that, that beautiful. Was... I mean, I, I think that thing's. The... <laughs> I've got. We've got to talk about that at some point. Yeah, it's, if, it's if awesome. you don't sell it, I'm going to copy it. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to copy it. Um, my yeah, my colleague. We'll talk about that later. We'll talk about it. Um, what I was aiming to is he sent me some some wonderful feedback um and in the beginning i was i wasn't sure what he was trying to say because he was like um he just sent me a text hey man um love the knives had to sharpen them yesterday everything good basically and then i i followed up so what did that mean that guy's literally standing eight hours a day in the kitchen and usually um it would take him two to three hours to resharpen a knife and he had that knife in apex ultra for a couple of days before he sharpened it oh so it wasn't it wasn't just like a little bit of difference it was like magnitude of like eightfold um until you know he got to the point where the peppers or the tomatoes didn't um cut in properly and that was where you know he just took one or two minutes and resharpened the knife and uh, went back at it again so this is the most wonderful feedback to me, uh, a guy who has a statistically re- representative amount of sharpening and cutting, and he just goes through so much, you know, vegetables, whatever. And um, yeah, he, he just ordered another knife and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just super happy to make, to make it because I know how much it's been used and how yeah, for him it's a very significant difference. And he, he reaches out to me again to get a knife from Austria, which is the shipping alone is more than um, you probably pay for two or three mass-produced knives down there. And yeah, let what's, alone the um, knife. 
What's the heat treat look like on that? Um, you know, you can heat treat it in a variety of ways. Um, it depends on what you have. So actually on the data sheet, we tried to um, like help everybody at where they are. It doesn't, you know, there's there's no point in telling um, you that you need cryo when you don't usually do cryo. And, um, you know, it's everybody's where they are and they have the equipment that they have um, and different ways of working. So we have like a heat treatment that is super high end. Like if you have everything, if you have the electric kiln and, you know, you do <clears throat> you do a normalizing cycle and a grain refining cycle and then you uh, austenize and quench and you do cryo and then you temper. Um, you can do that, but if you only have a forge, we also have a recipe um, how you can get you know the most out of your uh, knife just using a gas forge. Interesting. So I wouldn't say you know it's it's, it's the the recipe that we um, provide like the the ultimate recipe how we get the best values is the one that you have to use. It's a methodology that um, you can use like a high temperature normalizing followed by um, a grain refining cycle and then you know another cycle that leads to annealing that just helps almost all the steels that are in this category you know the um, hyper eutectoid steels um, they're all going to respond very well to that it doesn't mean that you have to do it exactly that way if you you know if you don't want to or if your process looks different um, you might get varying results or your hardness is going to be higher or lower than what's specified in the data sheet for that given austenization temperature because it's always a chain reaction. So um, you can't look at the austenization temperature and the holding time all by itself. You have to um, you have to look at what has happened to the steel beforehand because the austenization temperature and the holding time will depend on what the microstructure of the steel looked like before you heated it up so you know you have big carbides it takes longer to dissolve the carbides into the matrix basically you have small carbides or you have uh, martensite tempered martensite uh, for those guys who do like triple quenches or something like that there you would have martensite that has been tempered before you reheat it up basically so that means the carbon is already very finely um, distributed in the matrix and it takes very little time to dissolve the carbon. So that means like even if this if you use the same holding temperature and the same um, uh, holding duration, you're gonna have two different results depending on what the um, the storing product looked like. And that's the same with all steels. That's not specific to Apex Ultra. So to answer your question, the best would be if you forge it, normalize it um, around 950. Um, you can, yeah, around 950 is good. Celsius, I'm, I'm saying, I'm talking in Celsius numbers. <laughs> and, Americans, you can work it out. Um, um, yeah, what's that, like 1600, 1700 Fahrenheit, something like that? Uh, let me open the data sheet. I, then I can, I have a cheat sheet for the temperatures. You know what Normalizing, I did say, <clears throat> Tobias, you did, a, you did a great, you did a great video the other week with Vince or the other month about doing it with an induction forge. I found that super interesting. I've, I've, I love Thanks, an induction man. forge, but I've not seen people do a full, the full process, including normalizing heat treatment, everything in the induction forge. It was actually beautiful to watch. I watched it twice and thought, man, Thanks, I've man. Never, never seen induction forges like that. And now I want one even more. 
I keep thinking about bringing them over to sell them, but I'm yep. a bit dubious you about should. buying cheap Chinese ones um, I'm, without doing yeah. work to them. I think with most Chinese products, it's a quality control issue. So course, if you can work yeah. up a, a, a process. And uh, the problem I had in Europe uh, was finding the, the right cooler. So um, if you have like the package. almost and set it up yes. as a package, exactly that. Yeah. yeah, you set it up as a package. That that would be something that is uh, promising and that would help out a lot of people because now you kind of have to patch it together to make it work. But that's, that was exactly the intention. I didn't see, you know, I, I saw people forging a hook or something with the induction forge, and you're like, okay, this makes steel hot, but why is nobody making knives with it? And so I just wanted to show that you can actually do this um, all out of an induction forge with, I think I used two or three coils, so nothing crazy. Um, and as that and happened was more, I think, I think more people will, and you mentioned something super interesting that, in a basement, something like that, you're not getting fumes, you're not getting, you're not getting sort of the, the amount of filth coming out of it. And and I and I thought this is the funny thing. I know it's a phase right now, but I wouldn't mind betting in ten or fifteen years there'll be a lot of people having induction forge and nothing else, actually. And so there's going to have to be more and more people, and you may be super early to this, that are producing content on how to actually do all the stuff we've seen before, heat treating everything from 1084 right up to Apex Ultra on a on a induction forge so that that honestly it was probably the most exciting video i've seen ages and i like <laughs> videos to be honest i like Vince's videos but when yeah it makes did that, i thought man that that's super clever I, I, this is going to be a thing of the future i reckon i was so excited about the video i was i was like 100 percent convinced that they would be the most successful out of the i think we did 10 videos or something um different topics um we shot them all in like a couple of days when days or something, was yeah. here um and i was like this is going to be the one because it's super exciting nobody's done that before but it wasn't like by far i think the grinding jig video was the one that um yeah yeah yeah, yeah that the algorithm that favorite because nobody <laughs> yes the algorithm nobody's looking for it yet but i, re but yeah. I reckon because content's evergreen so in like two or three years when it starts to become a thing you'll be the first person who did a video on that or vince will but you you obviously were the first yeah. on it uh, i think i think that that will that could be one of his most successful videos in 10 years time yeah, it could be. It's going to be interesting to see. I definitely love mine, and I am thinking about buying another one in the near future because I do a lot of bladesmithing classes, and right now I can't really use it all that much because I usually have five to six people in the class. Um, so I can only use it for like short processes, but not really for forging because it would be just too much time. Yeah, but yeah. I use it a lot myself because, you know, I, I don't know, I get knives out of the heat treatment and one tang is warped. You just go over there, flip two switches, and in five seconds, you have a red hot piece of steel and you can straighten out the tang. Um, and it's it just changes the way you work. You have so much precision. You can still hold the work piece, work piece in your hand for most of the time because the, the heat is very short and very controlled. And it's just there in seconds and not in minutes, like on a coal or a gas forge. I wouldn't even, you know, you don't even get the idea to to do this in a, a coal or a gas forge. Oh no, it's much more precise, almost like almost like a like a rosebud or, or on an oxypropane torch, yep. or an oxycetylene yep. torch. Except none of the hassle, like you say, flick a switch on, yep. twenty seconds or whatever, and, and you're there. Whereas you're not turning the gas bottles on, working out your levels, lighting the thing up, burning half the hand off your hand when you light it, the hair <laughs> off your hand, and and then. You know, it's just all the hassle. But yeah, they're, yeah, they are, the bottles, amazing. 
the bottles are rent bottles or they need to be less licensed. I always wanted to have an oxyacetylene um, setup in, in the shop, but since I have the induction forge, I I you know I just got rid of the idea because no I always like I I didn't like the hassle all around the bottles yeah, yeah. and the danger and all that um, that comes with it. So I yeah, know we've gone off on another track perfect. here, but can you can you extend the cables on it? Because I've seen them before with with hand like a hand wand. The one you've got, can you put a so you could be a bit remote with it rather than join to the giant box? I think um, who was it? Uh, one guy on YouTube has that extension. I don't have it. I I assume that it's basically the same thing. Um, I think it doesn't matter what the the color of the outside box is. I think they're all the same they're machine. Um, so I assume it's gonna work the same. I haven't tried it. I haven't like most. You know, I'm I'm making knives, so the the knife is always easier to carry than any piece of equipment. So when you're making railings, you are gonna want to have a wand to bend that piece of steel that is out of line or something. So you want to bring the tool closer to the workpiece. With the knife, you know, it's usually the easiest to bring the workpiece to the machine. And actually, the only like when I imagine myself with a wand, I'm just gonna clamp it in the vise and then. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not. Not much purpose to that uh, for for knife making, I think. But for other things, definitely. Or I don't know, repairing bikes. Uh, I don't know, whatever. You know. We use we use handheld ones in the mechanic world for heating up. Yes, bolts. for the bolts, right? Lug when they get bolts. rusty. Yeah. Lug yeah. nuts. Sorry. No, you don't use yeah. them on lugs because they're chrome. But like exhaust whatever. manifold bolts. And I was trying to use American. Come on, come on, Toby. <laughs> thought you were a manly Australian. You don't know about man, I am actually, I am actually a mechanic. Thank you. That was what I did when I left school. <laughs> oh, really? We don't have lug nuts either. <laughs> I, just, I was just trying to be American. But they come in super handy, and like you said, they've basically replaced acetylene torches, other than for yeah. cutting. You know, oh, sometimes it's just easier to cut something off with the. We call it the red yep. wrench, but yeah, the red <laughs> wrench. Yeah, if, if, it, if it doesn't come off, it, it can't be stuck when it's liquid. Is, is, exactly. my, is my favorite right. name. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Uh, yeah. yeah uh, no, it's, it, so it's a piece of equipment that I love. It's, uh, yeah, I have the Chinese machine because I wasn't sure how much I'm going to use it and if it's going to work at all for what I'm intending it, just because there wasn't enough content out there. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm just try it. You know, it's uh, at the time I bought it was like seven, 800 euros without the cooling system. So I think everything total probably like 1500 um and yeah i love it for so many things you know burning in the tang straightening stuff um forging one knife if i just do one knife like usually the point where i really want the gas forge is just uh forging out the blade so when you make super thin culinary knives um when once you start forging in the taper and you make like a thin long blade that's where the, the gas forge is favorable up until that point when you forge tang and you know just shape the knife and all that um the induction forge is actually faster if you just do one knife so um like if you do bushcraft knives or anything that is a little bit thicker than one or two millimeters um i think the induction forge is going to be perfect and the other thing works as well. You know, it's just you have to find the right coils. You have to play around a little bit more. Um, the technology has come so far. I mean, my neighbor gave me an antique one, and it's just two posts, and you it's for bearings. So you right. put a bearing oh, over a yeah. bar, and you set the bar down on the post, and it heats the bearing up. 
Oh, and but not by induction or by like conduction? Is that? I, I think it's magnetism. Because okay. each, each end is magnetic and then it evens out in the center and things get hot when they're wrapped around the bar. I got it right okay. here. Hold on. I'll show you. <laughs> Interesting. It must still be induction then if they if they join it together and creating a circuit. Well, here it comes dragging this thing across. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great podcast. There's, not, there's, not, there's, nothing like, there's nothing like props on a podcast. Damn, man. That looks... That looks like an anvil. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> See what happens. <laughs> but you take these off, and they're just yeah. like lam- laminated steel. Yeah. Does it and glow then? That glows red or not? It buzzes super loud. Like, I didn't have it turned on very long, and I didn't. I can't put a barrel. It, it, it yeah. doesn't have a. It doesn't have a coil. So I'm thinking when you. Do you have like actual contact with the right and the left, um, cont- uh, yeah, electrode, or is it in between? There's two little pegs that stick up, and then yep. that steel bar has holes in it that contact those pegs. Okay, then I'm thinking it's a conductive heat transfer. So I think it's just running electricity through it, like on your welder, on your stick welder, basically. I think I think it's working that way because on an induction heat forge you have the coil. And you don't want contact with the with the coil, basically. So you want to have um, that isolated. So but it's more primitive then, probably. That is more primitive. But if you've got a mate with a pacemaker and they come near it and they die, then then he's right. That's what it is. <laughs> I hope not. That's one I way of testing not. it, but probably he's not a good one. <laughs> not the only one. No. I hope. Uh, cool though. Yeah, it was neat. He's like, you want this? I'm like, sure. <laughs> I don't know what I'll do with it, but... Something terrifying. <clears throat> yeah, conductive heat, tra- heat transfer, I, I thought about that. Like, for forging, uh, you could theoretically use it if you have round stock. Uh, you know, you just have two electrodes, you clamp it uh, to the front and the end, and then you run uh, electricity through it, and it just heats up by the resistance of itself. But the problem is, once you have like a geometry, like a knife geometry, you're just gonna heat up the slow, uh, the the shortest Industry, path. Yeah. So your your tip is gonna melt. Melt. <laughs> <laughs> the rest is not gonna be. Yeah. yeah. So it's not not the best for for knife. Electricity is lazy, right? <laughs> it'll take it'll take yeah. the easiest path at all times. That's right. Yeah. Cool. Um, what do you say we drop so, in a couple ads here and get them out of the way? Because we're an hour in. Sure. You do that. I'm going to go have a whiz. Okay. Hustle and Grind is sponsored by Maritime Knife Supply. Whether you're looking for steel, abrasives, handle material, forges, epoxy, or anything for making in general, Maritime Knife Supply has you covered. And in the U.S. or Canada, they ship faster than the great Cobra Chicken Goosesses that their country is known for. Go to Maritime Knife Supply, and when you buy a 10-pack of belts, get 10% off. And tell them we sent you, eh? So, I had a question for you. Um, I can't remember who it was. Somebody told me to ask you this, but I I use a lot of AEBL, and I haven't had this issue. But a lot of guys say that it will warp while you're grinding it. <clears throat> have you Have you heard that, and do you know why it happens? Yeah, I've heard it with different steels too. Um, 
I would say I don't know it. I have a theory. <laughs> um, I've been talking about this subject with Benjamin Kamen a lot uh, from Kamen Knives um, because he has experienced that a lot too, and I haven't. Um, and we were kind of comparing our processes and uh, thinking about where it com could come from. Um, so the theory that we have is that the belt actually works kind of similar to uh, sandblasting. So if you have ever sandblasted a piece of sheet metal, um, the the tiny, like the all the particles that contact the surface area, they act like tiny peening hammers. So the, the surface will actually bend away from the surface that, uh, from the contact area that you're blasting. So the whole piece will warp away from that. And that's usually what people um, experience on the grinder as well, right? Is that what you said? That it's warping away or that just that it's warping? It's warping while it's grinding. Okay, they, it's warping. Yeah, nobody's ever specified. Yeah, they didn't specify which direction. I think, like my initial uh, theory was that it was decarb, but we ruled that out in his case at least. Because decarb also, you know, decarb is a, a more dense phase, so once you grind it off, the whole knife bends away. But if it's not decarb, there can still be the other effect. Um, and that is basically, you know, if you have a very fast running belt um, and you have a rough um, grit on the belt, basically all these particles, they transfer um, kinetic energy into the material. And that is not only cutting, but it's also um, basically punching the steel. So you have a little bit of um, deformation behind the cut. And that deformation... Um, is basically creating tension in the steel. So like in the sand blasting case, it's the same thing, or bead blasting. In bead blasting, it's basically all you do is hammer the surface with tiny balls and the surface just gets harder because it has been deformed and it creates stresses on the surface. Oh. Um, and so the, the, the theory is that if you have a rough belt on there, you have a high belt speed and you go at at the knife, it actually starts to warp away from the belt. And that has happened to, to quite a lot of people, not just with ABL, but um, I think the high alloy steels are more um, prone or are more likely. Well, interestingly enough, I have that every, not every time, but I do a knife out of, out of um, 14C28N the yeah, eye. similar steel, similar yeah. steel, and I always just presumed, and it's only when I when it's less than about three mil thick, and and I, I at first few times I was like, oh dear god, I've ruined this knife because it's a quite a significant bend. Yes, but but, but figured it can out be scary, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then figured out after a little while, well, it's fine. It bends quite abruptly to one side, and then when I grind the other, it straightens itself. It's absolutely fine, and so and ev every time without fail, it straightens itself out. But but I always presumed, and you've, I've just learned something completely new there, that it was purely there was more heat on the side that, that obviously by friction on the side that I was working on, and it was just it was some 
an, an odd form of expansion on one side. It obviously yep. it's expanding more on one side than the other, which means it's essentially stretching one side. And the other side's not expanding, even though it's super thin and well, you know, the heat yeah. transfer is very quick. We had we had that theory too, um, but we basically ruled it out with Benjamin's uh, water grinder. So I use mist grinding, and I have slower belt speeds, so I actually don't experience that phenomena as much as he does. But he runs the belt at I think 30 meters per second, so that's uh, very fast. It's like one of the fastest grinders i know um i think he does or it's it's a pretty fast belt speed anyways and he has like flood coolant so he has so he has a 10 centimeter wide belt i think and he just has like a river coming down from the top so it's splashing everywhere it's actually an old glass grinder that he uses and in his case it just can't be the heat because there's so much water that even if you you know you press into a dull belt, um, the, it's, it doesn't even get hot enough to burn your fingers. So um, it kind of, like the only theory that was left behind was the kinetic energy deformation um, theory. That's that really interesting. So like peening the side of a piece of steel, like a knife, yes, right. and watching it bend, yeah. it's the same, but on micro level. It's the same as uh, the carbide hammers that people use to straighten out knives. Um, or any, just like you say, like peening. Like anything where you deform the top, you add, um, yeah, a deformed surface that has stresses, that has uh, compression stresses, and that just bends, makes the surface larger, as some say. I don't really like that way of thought, but for me, it's just compression compression stresses in the surface, and that bends away. But it's not knowledge, it's guessing. <laughs> it's just the only theory that I'm um, left with that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, what, what was it the Vulcans used to say? If you've was it the Vulcans, or it might have, it might have even been some other wise person. But about if you've if you've gone through every other option and it's not that, then the only one that's left, regardless <laughs> of how ridiculous it is, has got to be the truth. But I mean, that, that's how we get to any final uh, observation, isn't it? You, you sort of go for all the other options, prove them wrong, and then and then. Whatever's left is is right until someone else comes up with a different idea. Very likely right, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. True. That makes a lot of sense. I straighten my blades now with a, a carbide, carbide hammer, and it's just on a microscopic level. Do you use Same a Nyrox knocker by any chance? What the fuck is that? Oh, come on, man. <laughs> Corin Urquhart, uh, of, um, a maker in Australia, he makes the Nyrox knocker, which is a, which is a little carbide. Oh, no, side I, and a ball peen side. They're, they're, they're have, pretty sick. I wouldn't honest. mind a flat side. That'd be cool. I have yeah, Kyle Daly's. Right, right. I haven't seen anyone else make them, I'll be honest, because we, in Oz we have the Blade Symposium and we bring over like a Mastersmith every year and, and, they, and they teach. I'm trying to think who it was that actually showed us how to do that. And everyone was sort of terrified to hammer on their hardened blades, right? To <laughs> Yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> it was, it was this. What your tea, what, what your thoughts not to do? Never do by right? either by by either every knife maker or uh, just by failure, um, as I like to learn the most is by just trying it out and then failing. Right. And then the like, oh no, this didn't work out. Yeah. Don't hammer on your hardened steel. It's not a good. Idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is, he used a ball pen. I'm trying to think. I don't. I don't think it was Kyle Royer or Rodrigo Sofredo. Sofredo. I'm trying to think who. It, anyway, whoever it was, um, did it, and then. It kind of became a thing that everyone was doing in Australia for a while. And and then I thought Corin came up with a carbide face sort of idea himself, but clearly it already exists, but he's just kind of made it the, the new thing. But um, 
yeah, they've got a flat side and a ball peen. He's also just done like a cross peen version, which is which is very cool. But um, man, they work well. I bought one, and you get this thing. It's a tiny little unassuming hammer. It looks like a little brass engineer's hammer. That, that you think, what the heck am I going to do with that? But man, it'll it'll it'll. I've straightened so many blades out now. But the, like I say, the first few times I sort of held on for dear life, thinking. I'm going to ruin this perfectly good blade. I might as well just throw it in the bin now, but it was worth the exercise. And man, it works well. But but what you've said there, because they're obviously very small, but obviously not as small as what you're going to get on a on a, on a a 36 grid or whatever. But I guess the theory, there's no reason why why not. I mean, I'm sure somebody will tell us why we're all wrong. But um, put it in a video. Someone will definitely tell you wrong. <laughs> but, and, and some guy who's been straightening steel for 87 years will tell you why you're wrong. Yeah, you, you, I hope you, so. Then we learn something new. No, you might. Yeah, yeah I don't know. There, there's, I, just, I don't. Know. No, that's right. I don't know how much of that stuff you do online, like video type stuff. But there's always someone who's been doing it for my whole life, and I can tell you all about it. But they generally don't know anything. Anyway, we learned something new today. Rough place. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Right, no, so I had a bunch of questions for you, but he didn't tell me what any of them were. So. He's bumming. Oh, that's good. That's great. That's quality right there. <laughs> uh, that's quality. So obviously we've spoken about the fact this is this is probably more for high-end makers, um, Apex Ultra. But I, I would it, say is, performance-oriented makers, yeah, mostly. Um, so for anybody who's who's interested in, in high hardness, we also have um, some people are making like outdoor knives with it, um, like fixed knives, um, and okay. they're they're – this was going to be my question. Raving so far, so if, it, it's not what I expected to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I'm kind of like waiting on more is um, people in razor making, like straight razor, another super fine niche. But that's like perfect. We've had a couple of those, but very little. Um, I like I haven't pushed it in that direction, but I'm I'm, I'm sure people will figure it out. Yeah, definitely. Um, sooner than later, that this is uh, something that they are interested in, and also what I could imagine it really well for is um, like carpenter tools, like uh, uh, planers, yeah, planer blades and stuff. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. You know, fine edge, closed edge, fine angles. Um, I could imagine it really well for those, like right. for specialized tools. <clears throat> Because that, that that was what I was thinking. One of what other, what other applications are, and whether or not. Uh, so I, I started getting a little thing in my head for bushcraft. I only really make culinary knives, but I've been getting asked a lot recently for bushcrafters, <coughs> and there is always that that thing where people are looking for something that's a bit bit tougher, a bit more able to hold an edge. Now it depends. Bushcrafter is such a wide genre, mm. and not everyone's batoning and 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 like digging rocks up with it in fact no one should be digging rocks up with a knife but like bear grills does so i'm sure some people do but um (laughs) there's a certain amount of uh use for an outdoors knife even if it's for something like skinning right skinners it's going to be beautiful for a skinner and unless you're hitting bone it's likely to be perfect for that because you can get a very fine edge and it's going to be doing what you want it to yeah the The only thing is, uh, I think in outdoor use, you either have to have the clientele or the, the, the users who are taking care of their knives. Because uh, if you're skill, skinning or yeah, if you're doing anything with the knife outdoors, it's carbon steel. So it's not stainless. So people need to make sure afterwards that they you know wipe it dry and get it cleaned again. So if, if cutting performance-wise, I'm... I'm 
certain that it's uh, very good for skinning uh, for skinning knives. Yeah, yeah. Um, as you say, as long as you don't b- cut through bones or stuff, um, it, it's going to be fine. As long as you don't start batoning. If you have the right edge geometry, if you grind it to one hundredth of a millimeter behind the edge and two degrees per side um, primary bevel angle, it's not going to hold up to the bone and it's not going to hold up to prying. But uh, you know, it's a lot about geometry as well, not just about the steel. And I've been, yeah, I've been surprised, but um, it seems like kind of outdoor f- fighting knives, fixed knives, um, or also Scandi would be fine. Like obviously, you got something with that that's that meaty behind the edge. I can't imagine almost anything would be good for that. Even very high end stuff. I, like th- this is yeah, going to be hold an edge beautifully. Or even carbon steel folders. I mean, there's not it's not like a huge market. It's also niche again, but the the cutting performance is going to be um, it's just going to be better than um, most of the other carbon steels. Mm, that's right. Even the like the edge retention itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and razors is a hundred percent a thing, right? Like that. That's, yeah. Like that's it's almost like it was designed for that. Now you say that. Like I, I wouldn't mind betting. I don't know if you've heard of Boxer Custom Razors. A mate of mine, Stuart, owns a company called Boxer Custom Razors. And that guy makes some beautiful stuff. And he's always looking for new ways to push the boundaries. Yeah. I wouldn't mind betting he's already made one, right? You're going to tell me he has, aren't you? I don't, know. don't remember what the name says. So okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know. mind betting Stuart has has tried it. It, it. It's one of those deals everyone seems to be getting or yep. trying it, getting bits of it. Because like you say, it's a bit hard to get a hold of sometimes. Yep. But um. Oh, we're getting better. We're getting. Uh, we also have the next batch is just around the corner now. Uh, it was supposed to be shipped at the end of June. I told everybody that it's going to be shipped in July because I already assumed it's going to be a month late, um, like always. But it's two months late, so it's uh, going to be shipped middle of August um, to our place, and then we're going to redistribute it and ship it out to everybody else. So when I say August, it's in our storage. Um, it's like the big orders are going out so it's going to be available first probably in central europe where the orders you know shipping doesn't have to go to customs um those are going to ship easier faster and then it's going to take a couple of weeks more until we have it in australia and everywhere else in the world in the u.s um it's just been is that going to be is that going to be carried at uk knife micro supplies UK Knife Mate Supplies doesn't currently have an order in, but I have found myself more excited during this episode to maybe to maybe maybe chat, chat with guys <laughs> uh, later today. Yeah, uh, we should we should chat definitely. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you can find all the retail partners on the homepage. Um, the, if you go to apexultrasteel.com um, and then you just click on the where to buy section. You can see all the retail partners in Europe, North America, Africa, Australia, and Asia that we currently have lined up. Some of them already carry the steel and some of them are starting with the next batch. So they're going to be starting somewhere around September to have it available. But I'm sure they're all going to tell you through social media or their newsletter or whatever. Mm. Um, I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Have any like Damascus makers shown interest in it? Like even using it as core material on something Damascus clad or. Yeah, I think it's been used a lot uh, like that. I make billets myself um, that, that I sell like just Damascus or Damascus clad or wrought iron clad, stainless clad, stuff like that, that I sell to other knife makers because I have a big old rolling mill. So it just kind of 
fell into my lap that I have to do that, um, that it makes sense. And um, I, I've been building the process around it, getting all the tools um, lined up through the last one and a half years. You know, you need a big kiln to anneal it afterwards. And you have the big rolling mill, you need a big gas forge because when you forge something, it's okay if it's only 20 centimeters that you can get hot. Even if you forge a uh, like a big claymore sword because you can't work more than that anyways. But once you start hot rolling stuff, um, everything needs to be hot. So you need a big gas forge, heat it up. And yeah, so I've been tooling up through through the last um, time and now, yeah, starting to produce more laminates and steel. And obviously I only do Apex Ultra or mostly, mostly. Yeah, well, well hang on. Here's a question for you then. I understand Samai or a cladding of some description going over the top of it. But if someone, if are you saying you've made Damascus out of it? And if you have, what what's the other steel that you're pairing it up with that has a similar enough heat treatment that you're able to, you get differential colors, but but similar the, heat treatment process. Yeah, the way I'm I'm doing it currently is um, using like 120 layer cladding and then right. Apex Ultra in the core Single because core. there's nothing that makes the performance better. <laughs> um, I think Laren has done some comparison um, of a Apex Ultra Damascus with something else. I don't remember what he used um, in this study. But you can definitely use it, and you should definitely check out his latest work on um, Damascus and high performance and how it all, you know, what the effects are uh, behind using Damascus. But so far, in my mind, it just doesn't make sense technically. So I prefer to have, you know, the purely aesthetic cladding and then a nickel diffusion barrier that inhibits carbon diffusion. And then I have pure Apex Ultra that has not given any of its carbon away um in the core so that's you know it's a beautiful technical concept because it's the best cutting performance in the core then i have no carbon diffusion to the outside and then i have something that's aesthetically appealing on the outside and also if you do a slightly deeper edge on the damascus it actually reduces stiction and friction of the foods and increases food release so you know, it's like, oh, this looks pretty and it also works well. So yeah, yeah, what of are my favorite materials? That makes a lot of sense because if you're making, if you're doing like a, like a stack Damascus pattern or something like that, how are you going to pair up a 68 Rockwell steel with a 58 or a 62 or, you know, whatever you're going to get, what are they called? The Damascus tooth effect on the edge. Mm-hmm. Where like the serrations, micro serrations. Yeah, where the softer steel wears away faster than the harder steel, that'd probably be a lot more pronounced with the Apex um, Ultra. And also, like if you do a hundred layers in your in your three millimeter knife, you're gonna have like three hundred um, three hundredth of a millimeter layer thickness. So by the time you forged it all out and heat treated it, the carbon will have completely homogenized. So if I use fifteen and twenty, which has zero point seven zero point eight percent carbon. I'm just going to, depending on the mass ratio that I'm using, it's going to bump up the carbon content in the 15 and 20 and take something away from the Apex Ultra. And then you get like a mixed hardness, probably around 40, uh, 64, 65 HRC. Um, but it's not certain that the 15 and 20 still has like the characteristics that you were expecting when you put it in, because now it's like a higher carbon version of that so it's yeah, going to be yeah. more brittle it's going to harden different and stuff you don't like know that. what else is going to change yeah it changes well, the 
so it's actually it's a complex topic and you you have one more variable when you make a Damascus. The, the knife should look pretty and it should etch pretty. So um, it's a complication. I've actually that's been on my mind since we finished Apex Ultra, the development of it, um, to make a steel that pairs with it and etches bright. But it's technically it's a, a very tricky concept, and it would be like super niche market now yeah now yeah, we yeah. have <laughs> apex ultra is already so niche that you know the big companies don't really care about um that that field and now we're creating something that is only relevant to damascus makers who yes who want to particularly want to work with that <laughs> <laughs> and who don't want to use cladding so, so i'm not sure it's, it's ever going to be a thing but <laughs> it would be cool as a metallurgist i'm interested to know then what is your your choice for normal carbon damascus then are you a 1084 and 15 and 20 guy or you've thrown it off the off the boat and going with something else um to be honest i use I use that combination um, a lot for my bladesmithing classes because it forges well, it heat treats well. It's a very, you know, it's a beginner friendly um, combination. It's very forgiving. Exactly. And it makes a decent blade. Um, But when I make a knife that is like performance first, it just has Apex in the core <laughs> or some other steel that, that suits the application. Maybe it's ADCRV because it's a chopping knife, but I mostly do culinary knives. So it's usually Apex Ultra or 50 to 100. Um, so. Mm. You, uh, no, and, and I guess I was going off, off the, the 50 to 100 a little bit there. I, I'm, I'm always interested to know, and because it's a bit of a lower end steel, it probably isn't quite as important, but I, I've always of like everybody use 15 and 20 and 1084 because it, it makes sense. Some people go to 1095 or whatever, but you, what you're essentially using is a heat treatment process for both of them. That is that because they're similar in the heat treatment process that, it, that, that works. But when you start pushing the boundaries outside of that, to different steels that are either going to give bright color or, or whatever the thing you want is trying to pair up steels. You're often not doing the ideal heat treatment for either of those steels. You're yeah. having to pick something down the middle, which you kind of wonder whether you get the odd person online, mainly um, geeks that have never made any knife in their life that want to tell you that Damascus is the hardest steel in the world because they've got no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but it can actually quite easily be substandard to either one of its counterpart standard core steel. Oh, no. It is standard monosteels. We lost you we for a second. Out. Yeah, Hello? we're good. Keep going. We're good. Can you oh, hear me? He's, he's still not there. Yeah, there we go. We're back. Okay, so your question was basically, if you're not careful and uh, Damascus turns out to be an inferior product to the steels that you were starting with, right? Yeah, and I think that's true in so many ways because you can mess up in so many process steps. You can overheat the steel, you can get a lot of decarb, you can fold up dirt and borax and um, oxides into your billet if you're not careful and grinding. So I think like the very statement is very true. Um, and I'm convinced that you can do some things that are good for the knife with forging in general and many that are bad. <laughs> so um, with Damascus, that is especially true because you're doing a lot of forging and you're combining two steels. And you also change the steels because they are going to equalize their carbon content. 
So it's not just that you're doing a heat treatment that was not never supposed to be done, basically, but also you're doing a heat treatment for a now changed steel because they're both going to equalize their carbon content if you do a high layer Damascus. And now they're just a slightly different version of the steel. So it's always a good idea to do testing. You know, once you have your process down and you have your standard sizes, and I know standard sizes and standard processes aren't a thing for many knife makers just because of the quantity that they make. But if you do, just take the effort, make a couple of samples and, you know, just make at least hardness measurements and try to get the, the heat treatment to where you want it to be. Um, did that answer your question or did I just stray? Maybe. Yeah, it depends. I've also made Damascus from like steels not containing nickel, um, which can be interesting because you, you can make Damascus with uh, Apex Ultra. Um, I've made, for example, before Apex Ultra existed um, out of um, 125.62, which is like a very high carbon, high tungsten steel. And um, another cold working tool steel, I think it was 07. Uh, I just combined those two, and they're very similar in their edges. So when you just toss it into ferric, it's all black. Um, but then you have to start playing with your assets. So by reducing the aggressivity, I think I, I um, added some muriatic acid and like the tiniest amount of ferric, and then it was a very slow edge, and then I had black and bright gray. That actually looked really cool. I called it called it black Damascus. Um, it's, it's just not that bright contrast, but you can do so much with it and so many different steels. So you, even like now you can take two similar steels that are going to be um, just slightly different in their edges. And you don't, you know, you can't uh, toss anything into ferric chloride like with uh, 15 and 20 and 10, 1084. Um, and it's going to turn out great. Um, but once you work with two more similar steels, you just have to, adjust your etching process to still get a good edge. So it's just something, uh, a way to think about it. It's not just all the steels. The closer your steels become, the more selective your etching process has to be. Do you think that's why we've seen a rise in popularity with clad Damascus with a core? So like, you, I think so you know, because, like, because it's very mind. obvious. Yeah. Because the, the only high carbon, high uh relatively high carbon steel that contains nickel is 15 and 20 and nobody's using 15 and 20 for a high hardness blade as a mono steel knife um, i don't know any serious maker who would do that um so it has its places it has its places in like um very thin flexible knives but like if i want to have a Gyoto, it's not my steel of choice, and I don't think it is uh, for most of the people. So why use it in Damascus? Because it etches bright and because it makes the process um, feasible. And that's just something that has always been bothering me because I'm not 
choosing the steals anymore based on their performance, but now I'm, I'm choosing it based on their performance and their uh, ability to forge weld and their ability to etch. And it's just more complications, which means your steel choice is limited, more limited than before, and um, other steels will drop out. And yeah, so if I do a knife that is looks first, go go at it, use that. But if it's something that is performance first, I'm just going to use a different steel. In my case, usually Apex Ultra because it's, it, it fits the knives that I make very well. And I like making the knives that fit Apex Ultra very well. <laughs> so. <laughs> yep. And it's just fun to to use to use knives that are you know really really well made. It's just changes how you cook. It's I, I always compare it to buying hand tools for for the shop. Um, you know if you're I don't know a carpenter or whatever, you're just gonna buy the best freaking tools that you can afford at that time because they're gonna make your work easier. And I think if you're a chef, I know chefs usually don't earn the the highest amount of money, but still. A lot of them spend a considerable amount of that money um, to their knives because they are their primary tools. And some of them, they don't value knives at all. And some, you know, um, cherish them and worship them. And I like those guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think the thing is once you understand that it, like even the most expensive knife that you can buy um you need to take care of it. Like care is the most important thing because your sharp triangle pointy thing um it doesn't matter if you hit a hard surface or if you scrape um, over a ceramic plate or whatever, it's just going to damage the edge, no matter how good the knife is uh, or how hard the knife is or how tough the knife is. It's just not making 
the super small triangle at the front any better. You're just gonna make it worse. And that means like you have to take care of the knife. You know, don't use any hard objects with washing the same and with sharpening and with storage. And once you do all those things, you, you're going to appreciate a knife. Until you don't do those things, even the best knife um, is not going to be of any value to you because you're going to ruin it within a week. I think that's like that's the tipping point. If, if you take care of your knife and then you experience the fun that you can have with a good knife, then you, you're never going back because you, you now know how it is <laughs> to cut with the good knives. But most people just don't know. They've just been used uh, to, to use, using crappy knives all of their life. <laughs> uh, I would I would compare it to 50 to 100, also because of its it's you know it has the tiniest bit of uh, chromium in there, and it's also about um, homogeneity of the steel. So it's always going to be the weakest point that oxidizes first. Um, depending on what you cut, you get like a bluish or grayish patina um, nice. on the knife. If you etch it, it's a dark gray usually. So if you etch it in Damascus or Damascus clad or whatever, uh, it's usually it's not black like 1084 but it's like a dark gray you can get it like to very dark if you do coffee edges or orange juice edges but um it doesn't usually turn the same like perfect black orange um, juice did you just say orange juice yes i said orange juice you guys still use coffee i use i use coffee i've never heard of orange <laughs> juice <laughs> yeah um so i actually have switched um there have been a couple of uh makers that i've heard the recommendation for i'm not gonna say any names because i'm gonna miss who told me first but it's been austrian and german makers mostly um i'm really not sure anymore who told me first but basically you either you you it depends on the brand you use a slightly cheaper orange juice not like syrup kind of stuff, but you know, 100% orange juice, no concentrate, um, and no, you know, organic with half of the orange um, meat still in there, no pulp. <laughs> <laughs> um, so something in between, and um, it works fantastic on Damascus, um, and it's it's basically like the instant coffee etch. Um, what I prefer about it is I have less problems with the slight brownish tones that you sometimes get on a coffee edge and i think we've all had those and also once you found a brand that works for you um for me it's for example in the classes i just buy you know it's two liters of orange juice which is one euro and 50 um so you just open that and it's it's there it's working and uh with the instant coffee you also have to mix it fresh every week and it depends on the ratio and it's going to go bad after some time and actually you use a lot more like even cost wise it's i think it's the orange juice is slightly favorable um it does pretty much the same thing it's like the same colors that you get out of it just less brownish tones and if i'm not in a hurry if i'm making like custom knives um i just put it in there overnight 
And if I do classes and I only have about a one hour, half an hour for the edge, I heat it up to 40 or 50 degrees. If you go too high, if you go like 60 degrees Celsius, it's going to turn all back. Um, but that's just, you know, you got to tweak around a little bit. Try different brands, try different temperatures, start at room temperature. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know that. The green stuff, right? It gets firm and it's like an island on top of your coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, actually, I, actually, I, the way I work is I do mostly classes. So it's, I do a class, I have six knives and then if I have another knife, I'm just going to use in the next two or three days, I'm just going to reuse it. I have a lid on top and I put it in the fridge, but, um, if I have one knife class per week, I'm usually using two liters per week. So it's not too bad. Um, it, you have to throw it away. Once um, once it goes rancid, um, it also doesn't edge properly anymore. So it's not just disgusting, but it also loses the ability to to get a good edge. I guess it's something with the alcohol and the sugar and the acids doing their thing, but but it also makes the green island. You know, it's it's amazing, <laughs> floating on I, top. You just blew my mind. And you heard, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But not for me, not for me. It was somebody else. <laughs> You'll hear it. Uh, yeah. Damascus. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I thought it about it a little more. I think it was Bat Bat Forge. Um, and if you don't know him, definitely look him up. He is making some some fantastic work. I think it was Bat Bat Forge. Like um, the flying thing from Night Times, Bat Bat. I think it's Bat Bat Forge, actually. Two bats. <laughs> Two bats, one forge. <laughs> or just Bat Forge. Uh, it's also possible. I'm not sure about the Instagram handle. <laughs> Give me a second. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I think it was him. I enjoy eating pickles a lot. And I've always wondered about pickle juice because it's mostly vinegar. <laughs> people, people in the classes also always, yeah, no. If orange juice works, why don't we use, uh, I don't know, mango juice? Like this just works. Let's just stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's delicious. I, I don't etch in mango juice unless it's fantastic. Then I will use it, but.
Yeah. Which one do you sell? Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Yep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, again, not really. I I just took the the basic idea. Um, you know, the the jig didn't always look like that. Um, I went through evolution stages as well. Um, the the basic idea again is from uh, my friend Benjamin from Cayman Knives. Um, yeah. So he basically had like he has this weird grinder setup, and I couldn't work with his thing but he gave basically gave me the idea of using like just you know the rest in the front that controls the angle and then i was like okay this is not working for me but if i do this a little bit more flexible um you know just a work rest thing uh so just a lip in the front basically that that was his idea and then i was using that i was like okay this is really good like especially for culinary knives um i never liked the bevel jigs for large thin blades because they bend away. Um, so I really like the bevel chicks for smaller knives. That's also how I, I teach it in the classes. But then like anything a little bit more flexible and longer or like bunker, cleaver, nakiri type profile, that's just perfect with this uh, jig. Because the way it works, you just control how far the spine is away from the belt. And then the height of the blade basically will give you a triangle if you uh, push it into the belt and then you have your triangle and that's always going to be the same so you have the same angle on the right and on the left side and also you don't need a reference surface so that's big for me because if i do um, tapered tangs hidden tangs you know all forged blades um, the bevel cheeks are tricky because you don't have a reference surface that you can clamp it onto um, like the bevel cheek is perfect for stock removal outdoor knife that is just like fantastic right but if you have a tapered tang um, knife that it that's tapers down from five millimeters at the spine down to one millimeter at the uh, at the tip and at the back of the handle. Um, there's just no way of reasonably clamping it that it's going to be the same on both sides. So when you use the jig, the reference surface is the spine of the knife itself, and that makes things a lot easier. And even if you do like chef's knives, um, people always ask me how I do like pointed things. Um, either you can tilt uh, the knife down when you go towards the tip of the knife, or you can also leave some extra material around the tip of the knife during the grinding process and profile that out later. So I often do that in the classes because it makes it so much easier not to, to mess up the tip. Um, so what was the question again? I'm, I'm rambling. Um, Where can you get one? <laughs> oh, how, how it was developed, right? 
Um, actually, there's already somebody who's making it, um, and he helped me um, develop that. So the basic idea of the lip in the front is from Benjamin Kamen. Um, I changed the the look of the thing basically, and I added uh, basically the push stick with a roller bearing, um, because that, as I said, the one cleaver um, that was giving me a hard time grinding the S grind in. It was an Apex Ultra Blade. I didn't grind the S grind before heat treatments. So I was just standing there, you know, pushing with my thumb, and it was like the thumb is not, you know, there's not the, this is not a reasonable way of doing it, and so I came up with the basically idea of adding a lever and a bearing that just will give me the right point um, in the middle of the belt and in the middle of the blade. It's just going, it's always going to be the same and it's going to help me put more pressure on the knife. And the way I grind is usually with a slower belt speed than most people, but with more pressure and water cooling. So it, I, it just works better for me. Most people go really fast and have light pressure not to overheat the blades. So I go probably at half of the speed what usually people do, like 12 meters per second or 10 meters per second. But I push pretty hard and have a lot of water sprayed onto the blade. And that... Right. Definitely. That becomes a problem. And I've been... Uh, grinding water cooled, I think, for more than five years now. Um, because once I found that I'm actually spending 50% of my time dipping into the water bucket, taking the knife out, and um, trying to feel the angle again, I was like, okay, this is this is not working out. If I'm doing this professionally, I need to find a way to, you know, reduce this time to half, and I just bring the water onto the belt. It's messy. It's cold in the winter. It's great in the summer. Um, but for me, it's the only thing that, uh, you know, if you make super, if you make thick knives, it's less of a problem. But again, if you make culinary knives and you want to grind those post heat treatment to a couple of hundredths of a millimeter behind the edge, um, there's just no mass. So as soon as you put it against the belt, and if the belt is fast, it's just going to heat the blade. And I'm not a patient person. So water onto the belt, <laughs> water onto my face. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the rubber gloves yeah I you could do that um like Benjamin's setup is similar to, he really has a glass shield i I miss I miss like kind of the being close to the workpiece for that but it's not that bad like if you have a uh, spray cooling obviously you control the flu uh the amount of flow so if you go a little bit slower and you don't go full pressure on an old belt you just can reduce the water flow a little bit and have more air and it's still going to do a pretty good job on cooling so you can control how wet you get um it's still a good idea to have like a propane heater behind you or something if you're grinding in winter time um but yeah, I, I heat my grinding room to 12 to 14 degrees Celsius in winter, so I don't die. Yeah. But um, yeah, in summer it's more fun.
I think it's I think it's the other way around. I think I get more life out of the belts because it doesn't heat up the blade as uh, as quickly. And um, like if you if you learn machining or anything like that, um, what you always learn is that the depth of cut is important. Like if you're if you have a uh, an end mill that is rotate, rotating too fast and moving too slow into the workpiece, you're basically recutting the same cut very shallow again and again and again. So your teeth of the end mill will um, dull very quickly because to the, remove the same amount of material, they have to cut more often and cut into the deformed material. Um, so that's kind of how I see grinding at slower speeds. It's more like filing, less like, you know, going at it and sparks flying um just try it out it's probably not for everybody it works well for me and it just depends on the whole process that you have i think for me with the jig with the water cooling with the belt grinder that i have with the belts that i use it works fantastic but gotta find your own way i slow grind everything if i'm not hogging off material if I'm trying to remove a lot of material, I'll turn the grinder way up. But that's the only time I'm running over sixty percent power. Yeah, I also I also only do it on contouring because then I have a small contact surface, and then I use an old belt and high speeds. But usually I'm I'm running it pretty slow. So on the jig note of things, um, Tobin machines. Um, he's making a belt grinder, and he's basically we share, we share a shop. So whenever I have a, an idea. His name is his first name is Tobin, so he has nothing to do with Toby or Tobias. Um, <laughs> really, <laughs> that's too funny. Yeah, that's that's gotta be a confusing episode. Um, so Tobin machines on Instagram. He makes a belt grinder, and we share a shop. So um, when I had the idea, I'm using his grinders. That's how we met the first time. So I bought one of his grinders. Um, I still had a lot of space in my in my shop and asked him to if he if he needed a place. And so now we're just running ideas back and forth. I'm constantly giving him feedback. And um, yeah, he basically made the jig for the grinder and also to suit any grinder now. So he's producing the jigs. Um, but get in contact with him if you want. I don't have any, um, what should I say, any... Um, rights on the jig i don't i don't care if anybody's reproducing it i i just wanted to introduce the jig because i think it's such a useful tool for anybody making knives and um yeah yeah it's a fantastic grinder uh it's very versatile it's entirely closed so you know you have covers everywhere it's ce certified it has a very good motor good speed control um, <laughs> well, we're, uh, we're an hour and 45 in, what do you guys say? We play the last ad <laughs> no, I'm just sitting here listening to you guys. I'm just soaking it all in. Uh, all right. Yeah, I'll play the last ad. I'll play us out and we'll do a short after show. What do you say? Sounds good. Okay. Hustle and Grind podcast is sponsored by Phoenix Abrasives. 
your one-stop abrasive shop. When you go to phoenixabrasives.com, click the shop icon in the upper right-hand corner to find all the abrasives you'll ever need. Check out the Incinerator 36-grit ceramic belts, along with the Trizact gator belts that the hosts of Hustle & Grind use every day. When you check out, use code HUSTLE10 for 10% off your entire order. Awesome. Tobias, thanks for coming on again, man. There was no kitties this time. The last time you had your cats in the background. <laughs> yeah, it was rush. way more entertaining. I know it's a little bit boring uh, with just me, but I'm still glad you got me back. Uh, it's been very nice catching up. I hope Noah feels better again very soon. And thank you for having me. Yeah. And Toby, thanks for filling in for Noah. And I'm sure I'll be talking to you again soon. <laughs> now now I'm intrigued. Like, uh, I think my next car ride is going to be your podcast. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Honor is uh dies in every film on YouTube. Yeah. He, I, he I know him. Yeah. Fantastic um, videos. Love him. Great humor. Great humor. <laughs> He's, he, I swear, he's probably got a little American in him because he's a wild man. He acts like us. He's just brash and calls us cunts all the time. And yeah, he called me a, what was it? A minger? A minger? What is a minger? Oh, yeah, that's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but. Yep. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. That's what people appreciate, right? <laughs> Just get insulted. That's good. <clears throat> yeah, we're we uh we're growth through negative reinforcement. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I I tell my brother purposely not to compliment me. I'm like, don't tell me my knives look good. Tell me they look like shit. There's a fucking scratch right there. Because if you <laughs> tell me they look good, I might get comfortable. That, that doesn't sound like constructive feedback, though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the scratch part, yes, but they look like shit. You know, it's not very... It's not very reinforcing either, but yeah, there's no yeah. why in there. It's not. It's not why does it look like shit. It just looks like shit. Just make it better. Yeah. How? Just better. <laughs> I'll I'll put it to good use. Nobody will see it. I'll throw it away for you. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>